Amen. Father, thank you for Christ. I thank you that in the middle of chaos and confusion and frustration and heartbreak, some of the things that we're going to talk about this morning, that even in the middle of that, you loved us enough to send us your son, Jesus Christ. And that, Father, in him is true hope. So, Father, I ask that today you would fill our eyes full with the light that has come and revealed your glory to us. It's in the name of your son, I pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. What a good morning. So, uh, go to 2 Corinthians 4. That's where we'll be this morning, and I'm going to dribble on a little bit before we jump in. Um, You will notice the purple shirt this morning. I take my New Year's resolution seriously. This week. Next week could be a whole different story, but we'll see, all right? Um, uh, This morning, I'm just going to share this. Again, I've talked about the the ability, the beauty, the ability to take in the beauty of some of the, the things that nature, that God has provided for us in nature here in this area. Um, this weekend, I didn't know that, I guess there was some meteor shower or something this weekend, and uh, this morning I got here early enough where it was still dark out and the stars were in the sky, and I was walking just from my car on the other side of the parking lot to the building and got to see three shooting stars this morning, um, which means I should just go home and be done because it can only go downhill from there. Um, so, um, yeah, just, uh, uh, I, I said last week, let me clarify again, because of a lot of emails and texts that I got this week. I said last week that when I feel the tug of the Holy Spirit in my heart towards a particular passage and it just kind of continues to come up and come up and come up, then I jump into it and I, uh, I'm in, I'm going to work on this passage and we're going to see where it goes. And so last week was Hebrews 11 and the reminders that were there. Um, just to be clear, when I said last week that I'm, I'm uncomfortable and nervous because God's pattern in my life has been to hand me an anchor before the storm starts. And the anchor of last week was, take God at his word, even when you can't see what's happening. Trust the one who can. And so last week I made the public comment, like, man, that makes me uncomfortable because who knows what 2019 is going to hold. And a lot of you are very concerned for me, so thank you. I love you. There is nothing specific. Again, like I said last week, it is not a prophetic word. Um, I don't think that I can tell you what's going to happen this year. I can tell you this year is going to have incredible blessings, incredible opportunities, incredible difficulties, and in all and through all, an incredibly faithful God. All right, so we're okay. If I get emails about that one, I can't help you anymore. I'm sorry. (laughs) So last week, just by way of review, last week I did talk about Hebrews chapter 11, and and I'm not going to preach that whole message again. Just a reminder that we're to take God at his word. Um, We we walked through the passage that was the hall of fame of the Old Testament characters. It's the who's who of the Old Testament. It talks about all these wonderful men and women who took God at his word and trusted him when everybody else around them was like, you're crazy. And yet they still continued to trust God. And what we landed on was just the reminder that, that um, there's this, this neat transition that happens with no transitional sentence, no words of transition. It just goes from one to the other. And it's this picture of, man, these people were so faithful. They shut the mouths of lions. They put foreign armies to flight. And women received their dead back. And it was, it was an, an amazing picture, and I think the danger for most of us is that we look at those verses and think that's normative. We think that's the way life is supposed to go for the person who loves Jesus Christ, because that's the lie we believe. We believe that being a Christian guarantees us victory and protects us from hardship and difficulty. It does guarantee us victory, but not right now. And that's what the passage went on to say, but others were sawn in two. So other people, they didn't get to shut the mouths of lions. They were actually 
chased by lions and oftentimes devoured by lions. And the problem is if we believe the lie that being a follower of Jesus protects us from difficulty and hard times, when the reality kicks in, the normative way of life kicks in, when heartache and trials and frustrations and failure and difficulty come upon us, we struggle mightily. And it's because we believe a lie. And so the point of Hebrews 11 is, let's remember to take God at his word. Let's remember to to trust him in those hard times because he can see what we cannot see. So therefore, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 that follow Hebrews chapter 11, because of that, man, let's, let's just shed all sin and let's throw aside all of these morally neutral things that continue to trip us up and cause us to take our eyes off of the one who deserves our eyes to be on, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. This is our moment, so let's live like it. This is our race that has been set before us. This is our period of time. It's our little dot on the grand timeline of eternity. So let's be faithful with what it is that he's, he's given us. And so, so we've kind of walked through that. There's, there's no lying here. There's no distortion of God's word here. There's no false promises. There will be trials. There'll be difficulties. There'll be heartache. There'll even be tragedies. So the question that I want to work through today is, is the ever popular question, why? Uh, in order to understand what we're going to look at here in 2 Corinthians 4 this morning, we've got to understand a little context. So let me kind of give you a little context of chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians without uh, preaching the entire thing. It's Paul lays out in chapter 3 the beauty of the old covenant. And he, and he talks about uh, in the old covenant uh, how wonderful it was, how, how Moses went up on the mountain and he received the old covenant. And it was, it, and the, actually he uses the word, it, the old covenant brought death chiseled in letters on stones. That's encouraging. So Moses comes down with the law and instead of looking at it, this is the great hope, the law, really what that did was it just proved that nobody could live up to the standards of the Ten Commandments. It proved that God is holy and we are not. And so what Paul is saying is as Moses came down with, with these, these, this death that was chiseled in letters on stones, even that, the, the law, the old covenant that brought a judgment, even that brought with it this great and glorious glory. Now you and I don't understand glory very well. The people at that time did because when Moses came off the mountain, his face was shining so brightly they couldn't look at him. And so they veiled his face so that they could actually be in his presence. That's, that's what happens when he came into the presence of God and received just a sliver of a portion of the glory of the great and holy and mighty God. And so that, that's a beautiful thing. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, listen, now, if the old covenant was that glorious, the one that brought judgment, imagine the one that brings hope. Imagine how glorious that is. And, and then if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, this is a very Pauline-type verse. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. It's very clear, right? Paul loves those tongue twisters just to kind of get you thinking. And what, what he's saying in verse 10 is the thing that had been glorious, that, that caused Moses' face to shine so much that they had to veil it, that thing that had been so glorious is now not glorious by comparison to this other glory that has come and surpassed it. And that other glory is Christ and the message of the new covenant, which is the gospel. So what he does at the beginning of chapter 4, he says, listen, you have a treasure 
And that treasure isn't just this glory that it comes with, with the package of Christ. It's not, it's not that the glory shows up and it's, it shows up in a particular way. And that glory arrives in the gospel. So what is the gospel? Chapter 4, verse 6 gives us a picture of the gospel. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel? It's the light that shines out of darkness. What is the gospel? Romans 1.16 tells us it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first, even to the Gentile. It tells us here at the end of verse 6 of chapter 4, it is the gospel is found as you gaze into the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't a plan. The gospel isn't a strategy. The gospel isn't a list of moral do's and don'ts. The gospel is the means by which men and women come to hear about the light, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for them. The gospel isn't about our strength and our ability. It's about Jesus and his strength and his ability to deliver us from Satan. The the, the gospel is the declaration that, that the battle is over, that the victor has been crowned and your freedom has been purchased. The gospel is the declaration that God defeats death and evil and reconciles the world through Christ to himself. The gospel is the truth that the Lamb of God came came to take away the sins of the world. The gospel is the truth that the Lamb of God is the risen and living light of the world and that light is in us. There's no boasting. You can't brag about the light being in you. The only thing you brought to the table was a reason for salvation to be necessary. But Christ and Christ alone brought mercy and grace, and it's available to you. That, friends, that message, that glimpse of hope in the midst of a hopeless world, that's the treasure that is in us that we're going to speak about in just a few moments. So if that's true, why difficulty? I'll give you two quick answers, and then I'll I'll get really to the point as I walk through the message. But I want to make sure, just in case you fall asleep somewhere between here and the end of the message, you know the answer, okay? So the answer is this, why difficulty? Because you're not God, and you're not a little g God either. The answer is you're still wearing a tent of humanity, and the weakness in us remains. But God doesn't waste weakness. God doesn't waste difficulty. God maximizes it for his glory. And that's what our passage is about today. So look at with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll start reading in verse 7. Now we have this treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then death is at work in us, but life in you. 
So, so what Paul is saying is he has this, this glory of the gospel, the hope for hopeless, the life for the dead, the rescue for those who are in darkness. He says that treasure that we have has been placed in a cheap, fragile container. He, he, he mentions it here in verse 7. He calls them clay jars. These are, you've got to understand, in this time, it wasn't the only thing that was available to, to store things in. There were gold vessels, gold jars. There were gold jars that were encrusted with rubies and diamonds and pearls. There were silver vessels. There were bronze vessels. And then there were these clay pots. Uh, the clay pots were used kind of like our modern-day Tupperware. You threw pretty much anything in it you wanted to throw in it, and when you were done with it, you got rid of it. Uh, they were very common. Uh, they were also incredibly cheap. So they were cheap to make, inexpensive to make, and they held together like they were cheap to make and inexpensive to make. So if you brushed up against it, it might chip. If it fell off a little short ledge, it might shatter. It wasn't uncommon for people to continue to use clay pots that had big old cracks along the side of it because, you know, why throw it away? It's just holding something that nothing's leaking out of it. We could just keep it in there. So, so those clay pots, they had absolutely no value in and of themselves. The value that came with each clay vessel, each clay pot, was from what was inside of it. As Paul is trying to use an illustration for us, as Paul is trying to find an analogy to kind of drive it home, he says, that's us. That's the one I'm talking about. Nothing pretty, fragile, getting chipped and cracked all the time, and the real value is inside of us. Now, it's not hard for us to see how, how similar to clay pots we are, is it? I mean, you, you want to talk about how, how fragile we are? The, he, he walks through and says, let me, let me tell you, trials point out the fact of how fragile we actually are. I mean, you look through the list of four things that he mentions. You, you, you look starting in verse 8, it says, we are afflicted in every way. That, that term afflicted means that, that claustrophobic pressing in, that idea of, 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 of just one thing after another just keeps surrounding you and compressing you. It's that day where you wake up late because the alarm doesn't go off. You spill your coffee as soon as you get it. You can't find your keys. You finally get in your car. You're stuck in traffic. Then your car starts making funny noises as you're sitting in traffic. You finally make it to the office and you realize you missed a really important meeting and the client is livid with you and it's 9.30. And you're tempted to ask the most dangerous question known to man. What next? Don't ever ask that question. It, it's affliction. It just continues to press in on you. This is really juvenile, but I think it'll give you the picture. When I, I remember as a little munchkin, uh, before heading off to school, my mom would allow me to watch a television program before I got on the bus. This was, this was kindergarten, first grade. And that television program that we used to watch was Batman and Robin. Remember the good old Batman and Robin? The pow! Kerplooey! Smack! Um... It explains a lot about me, actually, now that I think about it. But um, <laughs> the, the reality is when, we, when we're watching that show, and you, you think, okay, man, Batman and Robin always get themselves into a jam, don't they? But there's one particular episode that has stayed in my head all of these years. Um, I actually tried to look it up on YouTube this week and couldn't find it, but they're at the end, because you know Batman and Robin always ends with a cliffhanger. It's always that, da -na 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 -na. next time, same bat place. Same bad time. You guys know the drill, right? Okay, so, but at the end of that show, the Batman and Robin have been captured and they're inside of this room and it looks really bad for them. But then all of a sudden it starts looking worse because the walls begin to come in on them. And then when you think it can't get much worse, big fake spikes start coming out of it. Whatever are Batman and Robin going to do as it afflicts them? 
Paul says, you want to know how fragile we are? Every day we are afflicted in every way. We're not just afflicted in every way. We are perplexed, clueless, baffled, puzzled. We're at a complete loss and we're filled with anxiety. Um, a much less serious than what Paul is referring to. Took a final exam in my master's program. Walked into the room. I had studied hard for it. This prof was one of those profs you had to study hard. Or he was not only going to fail you, but he was going to mock you afterwards. So I studied hard. And I got in there and I sat down and, and they handed out the exam face down and I'm ready. And it's, it's me. There's like 14 other guys are in their class. Um, and, and, and we're all like, okay, this is the big one. All right. And he's like, all right, you got two hours uh, when we start. Any questions? No, all right, turn it over, you may begin. I'm like, all right. And you turn it over. And as you're turning it, I don't know about you, but for me it's like, all right, Lord, this is my offering to you. Question one. Oh, no. I got nothing. All right, question two. Three, four, five, six. This is not an exaggeration. The first full front page of that exam not only did I not know the answers, I didn't even recognize the material he was asking about. I was like, did I walk into the wrong room? And I did. It was an eight-page exam, and I set it aside. I put my pen on top of it, and I put my head on my desk. I didn't cry, I don't think. <laughs> but I remember being like, I got nothing. What have I done? How is it possible I studied the wrong things? In that moment, I was perplexed. God, I have no idea what it is you're doing right now. Ever said that? Hmm. We're afflicted in every way. We're perplexed. We are persecuted, hunted, chased, put to flight. A hostile harassment to drive you away from someone or something. We're struck down. That, that means we are thrown down like we're in a wrestling match and it's going really badly. It means you got that, that punch to the solar plexus and you can't catch your breath and you fall over. It means you have been laid out by, by a punch, by a weapon, by something. That's what it means to be struck down. So, so, so you have been afflicted. You have been perplexed. You have been persecuted. You have been struck down. There is not a single person sitting in this room who can't identify with some of those. We've experienced it to one degree or another. And in those moments we experience that, oftentimes our hearts are bleeding as we cry out for a reason. God, why would you allow this? Um, before we can get there, <laughs> I think it's important that we wrestle with just a little bit of, of where hardship comes from. Not necessarily the reason for hardship, but, but where, it, where it comes from. And so there's, there's four general sources of, of difficulty and hardship. Uh, the, the first is, and this is the one that we are quick to jump to, and we, we find it easy to jump to this one. The first one is, is Satan himself. Uh, the enemy of God and his people is trying to attack us and come at us and condemn us and accuse us. And so it's easy for us to deal with the fact that this is pro could be from Satan. So we're just going to attribute this one to Satan's attack. That's why I'm going through difficulty and trial right now. 
Another one is, is the fact that we live in a world that has been turned so inside out by sin and its consequences that we're just reaping the consequences of living in a sinful place. That means disease, death, sickness, tragedy, natural disasters, things like that. So, so we can say, okay, that difficulty, that trial, that's coming because we live in a sinful place that, and sin has just fractured everything that God intended for good. The third source of trials and difficulties can be the fact that, kind of similar to that previous one, we live in a sin-cursed world, and we're all sinners. And so many times we reap the unwanted consequences of somebody else's sin. So somebody else would sin against us, and so that puts us into a time of great trial and difficulty. Those three are not easy, but easier to grasp, aren't they? Satan a sin-cursed world, and other sinners. But there's a fourth source of difficulty in your life. And it's God himself. And that is exactly the response and expression on your face I expected to see. Because all of us get uncomfortable when we begin to say God himself would bring difficulty into our lives. So, so let, me, let me ask you a question. So, so if you live your life and you build your life in such a way and you rig it so that everything lines up for your own comfort, your own passions, your own desires, your own journey, your own picture of success, your own timeline, and you, you set up all those Legos exactly the way that you want them to be, mm. what happens when God says, that's not the way I want it? What happens when God says, that's not my timeline, that's not the picture I'm going for? What happens when God says, that isn't the best way? It's certainly the most convenient and comfortable, but that's not the best way. What happens when, when your building of that Lego structure has made much of you, but not as much about him? I'll tell you what happens. God intervenes. Sometimes that may mean God putting his hands on you, and sometimes it may mean God allowing others to put their hands on you. So please, before you freak out, don't mistake me for saying that God is in control of one out of every four difficulties in your life. Because that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he's in control of all four. Oh, but, but that can't possibly be. No, God uniquely uses everything in our lives. Just because we live in a fallen world that was initiated by man through Satan, it doesn't mean that God isn't in control. And people get all nervous when we start saying God's doing this or allowing this for you. But we should be far, far more nervous if these things are happening and God is either unaware or unable to do anything about it. In fact, what we find right here is God did do something about it. it, it it's hidden in a phrase but not. That's, that's similar to the phrase that we find in the, the wonderful book of Job. You know, Satan appears before God and, and Satan's like, so, so what have you been doing? And, 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 and Satan says, okay, God, listen, you've got all this power. You've got all this stuff happening out there. You've got this dude named Job. And everything's going wonderful for Job. Everything's going perfect. I mean, his family's perfect. His finances are perfect. I mean, he is just the, the perfect man. Let me get to him. What, what does God say? Yes, go ahead. But don't 
touch him. Some time later, after Satan has gone absolutely crazy on everything around Job, and Job, you, you know, is still worshiping, right? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan goes back to God. And he says, listen, God, I want more access to him. You, you have this, this, this wall of protection around him. I bet you, if you removed that wall, I bet you, if you allowed me to touch him, he'd betray you. So God says, okay, but don't take his life. Here we have this. You're afflicted, but not crushed. And it may be closing in on you, but you are not backed into a corner that you can't escape. You are not left without any options. God continues to give you a way to get out of there. That's Batman and Robin again. There was this mysterious thing that occurred. For some reason, the horrible evil person didn't think to put a roof on the place. No ceiling, no roof. And so as the spikes came, Batman and Robin, in their infinite wisdom, climbed up the spikes and escaped the room. You're afflicted in every way, but you are not crushed. You are perplexed, but you are not in despair. You're not without help. You're not completely baffled. That exam, going back some of your attention, like you didn't finish the exam story. What'd you get? Okay. The good news is I turned the page at some point. And when I turned the page, I knew every answer after that. So the next five pages, I was like, bam, 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 bam. When you finish that, you're like, okay, I must just have been tired and, and maybe not reading. Okay, okay. Flip back to the first page. After going through the five pages, nailing them all, go back to the first page. Nope, still don't got it. So here's a little funny story, just kind of an aside. So I turned it in, and I was like, Pfft. and uh, I saw the prof uh, a day or two later, and he's like, Taylor, come here. I'm like, yeah, doc. And he says, um, do you have somebody else take the rest of your exam for you? I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, that first page, you got everything wrong. I'm like, Doc, I'm telling you, I didn't recognize any of that. Um, he, he thought it was funny. I did not. Um, I passed the class. He still likes me, I think. <laughs> Man, we're, we're perplexed, but, but you know what? I, God, I don't have a clue why you are doing this. But you have a track record, Lord, that I can trust. And you see everything, even what I cannot we're persecuted, but not abandoned. Yeah, you may be being hunted down, but you ain't running alone. God didn't leave you to say, hey, good luck. Run fast. You're not abandoned. You're not, you're not uncared for. You're not forsaken. You may be struck down, but you're not destroyed. I know that punch to the gut hurt but you're not unable to get back up. See, see that, that little phrase, but not, one pastor put it this way, that is God's sovereign prerogative to strain through his fingertips what gets to you. God's sovereign prerogative to strain through his fingertips what he allows to get to you. And some of us, too many of us, will allow the hurt and the pain of our brokenness that comes in those moments to overshadow the reality of God's love and care for us. You are loved. You know you can't do anything to make God love you more, right? You know you can't do anything 
to make God love you less, right? You're loved. You're also cracked. And you can take that any way you want. <laughs> You're broken. You got a big old nasty crack down the side of your clay bucket. Sometimes you're shattered. As you demonstrate a weakness again and again. And in those moments, God is working to strip you of your self dependence and pride. And in those moments, you are left disabled, desperate, and in need of help. Why would God allow that? That's the the answer we're going for today, right? Why would God allow that? Because God stores his treasure in cheap buckets so that his glory will be made obvious. I mean, that's what our passage is. Look at verse 7. We have this treasure in clay jars, cheap buckets, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. Verse 10, we always carry the death of Jesus in our body. Why? So that the life of Jesus may be displayed in our body. Verse 11, we live, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. He he keeps his treasure in, in cheap buckets so that every time you get bumped, Every time you get knocked over and another chip falls off you, there is a chance to speak of the gospel that gives you hope. That every time you get shoved off a shelf, there's a chance to reveal that Christ means more to you than any other thing. Every time something explodes, there's a chance to show off the living Christ to those who are around you. There's there's a lot of, um, (laughs) that's a rabbit trail I need to be careful of. There's a lot of self-help books out there. A lot of Christian self-help books out there. I'm not judging all of them all at once. I'm not going to go to each individual one either. I'm just going to say this. Many of them say that the reason there's hardship in your life is so that you can be shown to yourself what you're made of. But what God's word is saying, that hardship isn't there to show you what you're made of. It's there to see God's, God's great glory. This is no secret. God loves to use weakness to express his glory. No secret. No surprise. Maybe you could go through almost any Sunday school story and, 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 and point that out. I mean, you, the one I always default to when it comes to stuff like this is Gideon. You have Gideon, and in the description of the army that Gideon is going to fight, it says he stands on the top of the hill and he looks into the valley, and there are so many Midianite soldiers, it looks like a plague of locusts are just running around. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Midianites, and Gideon and his 32,000 soldiers are about to go to battle. And God says, Gideon, hold on a moment, a word please. 32,000, you've got too many. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to stand in front of your 32,000 strong army and I'd like you to ask, which one of you is afraid? And anybody who says they're afraid, let them go home. Gideon says, all right, Lord, I'll do that. So Gideon stands in front of his army and says, okay, come here, men. Before we go to battle, uh, just a question for you. I mean, let's, let's be transparent. Let's be honest with each other. How many of you are afraid? 
And I think in Gideon's mind, and this is extra biblical, this is my opinion, this is over here, not over there. I think in Gideon's mind, he's probably thinking, I'll be a couple of hundred guys going to be like, me. I don't think he expected 22,000 men. Like, I'm terrified. Oh, great, you get to go home. So that leaves Gideon with, with 10,000 against a, a, an army that looks like a myriad of locusts. They're getting ready to tear each other up. And he says, okay, okay, guys, we're getting ready for battle. And God says, hey, Gideon, a word. I want you to bring your men to that, that stream and watch how they drink. The ones who drink like morons and just go face first in, you need to send them home. But the ones who stay alert, spear in hand, bring in the water. You keep them, Okay. And Gideon's like, sure, no problem. I mean, these are the men that Gideon probably wants anyway, the ones who are paying attention. So certainly out of 10,000 men, he wasn't thinking that something horrible was about to happen. And so he says, Ben, everybody, it's a water break, get a drink. And he's got to be standing by the river. After about five, 10 minutes of thousands and thousands of men come and drink, he's got to be like, wait, wait, stop. How thirsty are you? You sure you want to drink like that? No, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. And so now his army that was 32,000, that had become 10,000, is now 300. <laughs> all right, Gideon. Gideon's got to be thinking to himself, all right, here we go. All right, okay. Against the Midians. I'm not sure how we're going to do this. Maybe we come around the flank. We can, and then he says, God says, hey, Gideon, a word. And Gideon at that point is going to be like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> yes, Lord. Hey, leave your shields. Leave your spears. Leave your swords. You don't need those. Instead, I want you to bring a clay pot, a light, and a trumpet. Good luck. Gideon distributes his things. They go. They stand around the city. And the plan was (laughs) they're going to put the lamp in the pot. And then they're going to shatter the pot. And so the lamp will be seen. And then they're going to blow their trumpet, and then they're going to scream, the sword of the Lord and Gideon. That is straight out of a Norman Schwarzkopf book. I'm telling you, that's like 1990s military strategy right there. And and, and Gideon and the people go, and wouldn't you know it, they won. And I'm sure Gideon walked away like, ha, pretty amazing strategy, don't you think? Right? Yeah, no. See, God maximized the weakness of Gideon so that he would get the glory. There was nobody that left that place and thought Gideon won that battle. There were people that were like, God is real. But nobody left that battle thinking Gideon had won it. Or, or, or even you get, you get to the New Testament here and you think about the early church. You get to Acts chapter 1, which is, is one, of my, my, one of my favorite passages. You get to Acts 1 and the, the disciples are waiting and, and, and Jesus appears to them and, and you know the disciples are completely out of focus. I mean, they, they're focusing on all the wrong things. Is this the time? Is this the time? And, and, and Jesus is like, stop, stop, listen. You will receive power. Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you, your task is to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and around the whole world. That is all I'm telling you to do. When the power comes upon you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all around the world. I want you. Now, at this time, they're in Jerusalem, right? And, and Jesus ascends, and I love it. He's like, he's gone, and the disciples are like, huh. And there had to be some time that went by 
Because then the angels show up, and they're like, uh, guys, hey guys, guys, he's gonna come back. You better not still be standing here. But you know what's funny is they kind of did, didn't they? Because you get to Acts chapter two and Peter preaches this, this incredibly non-seeker sensitive message where he's like, Jesus is dead and you did it. And people are like, sweet, save me, Jesus. I mean, that, that doesn't happen in today's world very often. 3,000 souls are added to the church that day. You go through Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5. You, you've got all these things happening in those, those chapters where, where, where actually, I mean, yeah, there's difficulty. They're being arrested and they're being persecuted a little bit, but, but you know, the screws haven't been turned to them yet. And, and they're enjoying the growth of the church there in Jerusalem. See a problem? So in Acts chapter 6, it gets real. Because in Acts chapter 6, the Pharisees decide it's on. We need, we need to put it to these guys. And so a young man named Paul, excuse me, I'm sorry, his name was Saul at the time, who wanted to prove himself to be one of those big bad Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they began persecuting the church. They began tormenting the church. They began torturing the church. They began executing church members. And you know what the church members did? They ran. They were being persecuted. They were being chased. This is terrible. Get out of here alive. And they ran. And we're tempted to think, what a shame. Things were going so well in Jerusalem for the church. But what we need to focus on, the fact that that persecution led to them obeying what Jesus had called them to do. Because you know where they ended up? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all around the world, Union Bridge. See, what we looked at as a great shame God used to spread his glory. And in Acts 17, even the persecutors of the church said, God spread his great glory, and these men have been used to turn the world upside down. See, we're quick to look at difficulty and find the bad in it, and we forget that God can even maximize weakness. I, I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, normally I do, but this time I don't. Um, Somebody shared a story with me last week about a man who had a stroke. And he ended up in a nursing facility. And that man has never stepped foot in church. And one of our members went to visit him and sat down and started talking. And all of a sudden, the guy started talking. I don't remember exactly. Oh, David, about King David. And how King David had sinned so grievously against God. And yet, and yet God still looked at David and loved him. And he made the comment to one of our members, like, can you believe that? And, and, and our member was like, where did you hear about that? You, you've never stepped foot in church. He said, well, you know, I'm here. I can't go anyplace else. They have a church service, so I go. See, God maximizes weakness for his glory. Um, those of you keeping track at home, <laughs> the last four months, we got 11 babies that have been born. Um, the last four one of them was born on December 28th, Atticus Maori. Cool name, Atticus. It says Frank. I'm sorry. Anyway, um, <laughs> and for those of you that don't know, on January 1st, Emma, Audrey, and Josie Osterhaus were born. Now, 
There's great mourning and celebration with that. Because the first person that Josie saw was Jesus. And we thank God for that. It has been, they're going to hate me for saying this, it's been a joy to watch them. It has been amazing to watch Mitch and Maddie cling to Christ through the last few months. We don't know why. But God doesn't waste difficulty. And he maximizes it to make much of himself. He's not a secret. God loves to use weakness to make much of himself. It's also not a secret. We hate weakness. We'd rather be bulletproof. We'd rather be unbreakable. Uh, But we would miss opportunities to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with other people around us. Uh, With fear and trepidation, I'm going to use an illustration here. Uh, I get made fun of because every time I use a prop, something horrible happens. Pray for me. But I think this picture is what we're trying to say what God's trying to say in his word right here. I have a, um, see, my wife and I have a favorite picture of our four kids. Um, It's from years ago, probably 10, 11 years ago now. But when you look at this picture in all four kids, you see their personality in their eyes. You see the nerdy humor of my oldest son, Jordan, You see the introvert who doesn't want to laugh too loud but really enjoyed the joke that nerdy humor her older brother told, Amber, shows up. You see Luke, who just likes being happy. And then you see the mischievous one and the look in her eyes. That picture means everything to us. We only have one copy of it. I brought it. It's right here. I I mean, trust me, I did not bring this out of the house without my wife giving me approval to wrap it up with lots of insulation, the foam-packed envelope, wrapped in duct tape so nobody accidentally opens it. Uh, We have written fragile, do not open because something happens to this picture, it's over. For me. <laughs> this, this, this is the picture. All right, you can't see it, but I can tell you about it. You, you, you got, you, they're all in there, and they're laying down, and their legs are up, and they got the smiles, and it's, it's, it's all, it's. I mean, it doesn't matter how good of a storyteller I am or how amazing of a description I can give you. You're not going to get it. Unless I put this picture in something far more fragile, like a picture frame that actually has already broken and it wasn't me. Now it's on display for everybody to see. The desire of our hearts to be able to live like this. God said, I didn't put you in little indestructible packages. I put my treasure inside of clay pots. 
so that when the crack happens, what comes out of that pot is a glimpse of the glory of the gospel declaration that God loves you and sent his son Jesus for you. Um, I think we know the love of Christ on the cross. But Jesus also knew that we would forget quickly. And in turmoil and difficulty and trials, it's easy for us to forget how far Jesus came to rescue us. And so what he did for us is he left us a picture. A picture that was given to his disciples on that last night. And it's shared with us even to this day. And that picture is communion. The picture is crackers and juice. There is nothing magical in those elements. It's simply meant to be a picture. So when you look at it, you remember that Christ's body was broken for you. And Jesus shed his blood for you. So in the middle of difficulty, in those days when we're having trouble seeing, it's important for us to gaze at this picture for a little while. And so as a church, we're going to take a few moments to observe communion together, the Lord's Supper together. Just logistically speaking, I'm going to pray. The music will play. The music begins. If you would leave your seats, and everybody, just, just humor me for a moment. Raise your right hand. Raise your right hand. Right hand, okay. I'm not, not making you swear to anything. Don't worry. All right. That's the side you leave your aisle on. You return to your aisle. Raise your left hand now. On the other side. Good? All right, good. <laughs> now, as you come, remember that as we gaze at this picture, what we are gazing at is the substance of the treasure that lives within us. And we're gazing at the face of Jesus Christ. Let us eat and remember that it was for our sins body was broken and his blood was shed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great and gracious love towards us. God, I thank you that in these moments, um, you not only can be trusted, but you can be rested in. For the soul of the one here who's wrestling and struggling with difficulties, I pray that you would comfort them, cause them to find their rest in you. Lord, I pray for the, the one here who just simply needs to remember what you did to, for them, to remember that you love them. May they find that reminder as we take time to observe this, this wonderful picture that you've left for us. Thank you for Jesus. Amen.